From the crossroads of America in the Hoosier state of Indiana, this is Get In, the podcast focused on the unfolding stories and extraordinary innovations happening right now in the heartland. I'm Matt Hunkler, CEO at Powder Cake, and I'll be one of your hosts for today's conversation. I'm joined in studio by co-host Nate Spangle, head of community at Powder Cake. And on the show today is Dan Bruner, CEO at Market Wagon. That's not like shopping on Amazon, which is completely optimized for let's read the reviews, let's buy the one or two things that I'm looking for, and I'll come back and buy some other stuff Mm -hmm. in a day or two. Mm -hmm. If you're going to buy 20 things at a time, it is tedious. Dan Bruner is an expert in all things supply chain management and innovation. His unique insights have not only propelled Market Wagon to new heights, but also reshaped how we think about e-commerce and logistics in a rapidly evolving digital world. Dan's journey in the logistics and fulfillment world is nothing short of remarkable. He was an early employee at Kiva Systems, a game-changing enterprise in the field of robotics and automation for fulfillment centers, which was acquired by Amazon in 2012 for a whopping $775 million. He's making waves now at Market Wagon, an innovative company operating local online farmers markets and delivering fresh local food directly to consumers. Under his guidance, Market Wagon has grown quickly, earning a spot at number 680 on the Inc. 5000 list of America's fastest growing private companies. In today's show, we are going to cover a range of topics, including the future of supply chain management, the role of analytics in driving business decisions, and Dan's approach to innovating and digital transformation. We'll explore tips for growing a direct-to-consumer e-commerce business, understand the dynamics of market booms and market corrections, and delve into Dan's rich experiences and lessons learned from his tenure at Kiva Systems, from its pre-funding stages to its post-acquisition triumphs with Amazon and all the amazing things going on at Market Wagon. Dan, welcome to Get In. Thank you. Happy to be here. We are so excited about this conversation. I'm eager to dive into all things logistics and supply chain. But before we do, I I thought maybe we could back it up a little bit and you could tell us a little bit about your career journey and what took you from post-college, diving into entrepreneurship, and just this crazy cool career path. Sure. First, I have to shout out for, you make logistics and supply chain sound like the most cool, interesting topic ever. And and we'll make it that way today. I think so. Thumbs up for that. Hey, we wouldn't have anything if if it weren't (laughs) for logistics and supply chain. So I think it's pretty cool. That's right. Uh, My personal journey, I I born and raised in, in Indiana, got an engineering degree, went to California, did that for a little while, but ended up ended up getting a business degree and becoming embedded in a lot of software-related businesses. So I'm not a coder, but have been close to software the whole time. I can code a little bit if I need to, but not (laughs) my kind of role. probably don't want to. That's (laughs) same for me. But that's put me in a unique position, both at Kiva and at Market Wagon, when it comes to figuring out what the tech can and can't do. So that's been helpful. Some roles in marketing in the past as well. I I, uh, got really interested in dot-com grocery Mm. during the long-ago first dot-com bubble. That's now been a while. Yeah. And a bunch of companies started up and a lot of them fell on their face, which is scar tissue that, especially in dot-com grocery, we're still dealing with that scar tissue today a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. What Um, was that like going through that? At the time I was operating an engineering consulting business in Broad Ripple. Nice. And I was asking people like Atlas Supermarket and Good Earth Natural Foods, hey, let me take you online. It's time, it's time. They weren't quite ready for different reasons. Sure. But I moved on with my engineering consulting business. But one of the biggest startups during that era was Webvan, mm. started by Louis Borders. And they raised, I think, $750 million, something like that, and were gone in a year and a half. Whew. They built a bunch of big automated distribution centers because that's what they thought you needed to do in order to do e-commerce fulfillment. One of the individuals who worked for them, really, really smart and charismatic guy named Mick Mounts, MIT engineer, Harvard MBA, was tasked with trying to make it cheaper to deliver those orders from WebVam. When mm-hmm. the company folded, he got to thinking about how to do it better, and that became Kiva Systems. So very cool. Mick approached me and my consulting business, my little one-room office in Broad Ripple. In 2002, he paid a visit. And how did you two originally get connected? He got connected because he needed to. He's very visual, and he wanted to be able to demonstrate this idea that he had for robots driving around in warehouses. A lot of people have seen the videos of the Amazon warehouses with the robots driving around, so that's what this is. And very cool. He, but it didn't exist yet, and so he needed to be able to communicate it visually and study it from an engineering standpoint, see if it was going to work. So he had reached out to a software company that I had worked for previously that did simulation software. Mm-hmm. So he's calling me up saying, Dan, can you help me simulate and visualize this idea? That's cool. So... My small company in Broad Ripple did that on a 
a consulting basis for a couple of years, but then Kiva got funded and they got funded again and they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. So I spent the next seven years as a VP at Kiva Systems on an airplane every Monday morning to Boston. We didn't move. We stayed in Indianapolis. Wow. That's and awesome. That was a, a really amazing ride. And Mick was an amazing mentor. And, and How much did he raise for um, Kiva Systems? Do you remember? I think the total ever raised was $33 million. Okay. So he raised $750 million he thereabouts sold, sold previously. Sold it for seven seventy five after raising $33. Well, he, yes. wasn't the, he wasn't the founder of the Webvan. Web van. He wasn't the founder of Webvan. No, this isn't Webvan. Sorry. Sorry for the okay. confusion there. No, yeah. no worries. Mick was an employee at Webvan, but he was gotcha. the founder of Kiva Systems. Gotcha. And he was able to raise $30 million post.com bubble. For so, a warehouse automation company. So he's obviously good at raising money, at least telling stories. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. What do you think he did particularly well that you observed in those early days of Kiva Systems? He was just a really a great leader. He was charismatic and obviously really smart. And he had a vision for how Kiva needed to work and how it needed to be perceived in the marketplace. And he really mm. stuck to that vision, mm. maybe over the ob objections of some other people. There was a little bit of, so Mick had been a product manager at Apple. He's not Steve Jobs personality wise, yeah. but I think that hands-on approach, I'm going to get this product exactly right. Yeah. Was in his DNA. And, and I guess I, as I think about this, like you knew that he worked at Webvan and mm -hmm. that had not gone well. And then he convinces you to join another automation startup where he raised more money and you're like, oh yeah, come join. Like we're going to get it right this time. Webvan was an e-commerce grocery company that was before its time, basically. Yeah. They arguably didn't, they might wish they had spent their money a different way and the market wasn't really ready. Also, the shoppers weren't ready in 2000 for someone else to choose their peaches and their bananas. That right. that didn't exist at that time, right? Amazon was four years old or whatever at that time. Yeah, that's right. So the market wasn't ready for dot-com grocery. Most of the companies that started then failed. A few of them survive or have been bought out a few times and still exist today. But that was dot-com grocery. And Mick was trying to help the dot-com grocer, and he ended up starting a business to help other dot-com companies do what they do, which is why Amazon eventually bought Kiva. Very cool. I understand your grandfather was an entrepreneur. He was. How did that shape, how did his experiences shape your own early career decisions and kind of overall career trajectory, focusing on kind of more entrepreneurial roles for yourself? Yeah, Louis Bruner was a very hardworking and also charismatic person in a different way. But What was his um, business? It was a chemical business for soap, wax, that kind of thing. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, so he was trained that way, and that was the business that he started in 1935. And just being able to visit that business on a regular basis when I was small and observing what he did and how how he interacted with the people there, I just always wanted to be an entrepreneur myself. So, Are there things that you saw him do in that business that, looking back, you think maybe influence how you've gone about business and some of the successes you've had? I think there was a great care taken to have relation the relationship between the employer and the company i think he was really good at that yeah very cool very cool let's tell well, me the employee in the company sorry i misstated but yeah. sure D tell me a little bit about market wagon and how that came to be so with my great interest in dot com and when i when kivo got sold at that time my title was vp of grocery solutions design so we were working there's this kind of common theme of grocery yeah and when, when I met Nick Carter, who's my co-founder at Market Wagon, and he was already doing a prototype of this mm -hmm. with not mainstream groceries, so you're not competing with Kroger and Walmart, but it, it's a defensible niche and a more profitable niche, my eyes just got really big. And I said, this is the business to be in. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we got together and formed Market Wagon in the spring of 2017. That's cool. And give me the original pitch. From Nick? Yeah, from you. Oh, yeah. We have a mission, which is to help local food producers, farmers, and food artisans thrive in their local and regional markets. That's, that's really still cool. our mission today. So that was, that was the mission back in 2017 and yes. it's still a mission today? That's correct. Nice. That's so fun because I feel like you're also in, in the right timing where farmers markets are more prevalent than ever, right? Like mm -hmm. every Saturday in Broad Ripple and Carmel and every throw, throw a rock in, in Indianapolis and you're going to find one. Every Saturday here at 16 Tech where we're recording, there's a farmer's market. Farmer's out in the amp space. Really? I yeah. did not know that. I didn't yeah. know. Okay. During the winter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so Winter Farmer's indoor, Market indoor is, is farmers here, market. and it's incredible. But it's not the same one that's been going for years in on the Near East side. I'm not sure about okay. that. I'm not sure. 
I feel like you might be the farmer's market expert. Yeah, no, I know a few of them around here. Um, those relationships with the farmer's market vendors are kind of part of the lifeblood of Market Wagon. So we, yeah, we need to know who those yeah. people are. Well, you talk about you were back in two, the early 2000s trying to get good earth grocery. As this one I know in Broad Ripple, right? Yeah, you're yeah. trying to get them online. Yeah. And when you think about the traditional farmer's market, was that a hard challenge as well? Getting the traditional farmer's market, small business, oh, probably a side hustle for most of them. Hey. Come online and join this technology solution that's going to help you get your goods out everywhere. Yeah. So in the Market Wagon era, getting those people into Market Wagon as vendors, it's really a true marketplace business where they sign up and they produce the content and they do the listings and they set the inventory and they set the prices and they're bringing the food to us typically on our fulfillment day. We'll get into the logistics yeah. and supply chain part, but it's very unique and it's the reason why the economics are better for Market Wagon than a lot of other uh, e-commerce grocers. Cool. But those relationships are, are critical. It is a relationship business. It's a relationship business at the level of talking to someone who just has a few chickens and, and raises and, and sells eggs, but all the way to someone who might have a really large produce farm somewhere, even though it's still local and local scale, but they're a larger successful produce farm. It's the relationship that that person has with their customers that is, I was surprised to learn that. It's not arm's length. It's relationship based. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Obviously, Market Wagon is super successful right now. 680 on the Inc. 5000 yeah. fastest growing company list. But I imagine that wasn't always the case. Can you talk about some of the bigger challenges that you face before we dive into the success and the how of the success? I'd love to just learn a little bit more about maybe some of the bigger challenges you faced, either with markets themselves, market shifts. I would imagine the pandemic had some effect. And then even things like business partners and who you decide to team up with. I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. So I think, again, it's you're trying to grow a customer base in a marketplace, but you're also trying to grow the supply base. Mm. In a lot of ways, the supplier is like our customer. Like we're selling access to these consumers to you, the farmer or food maker. And you have the consumers because you've done such a good job with digital marketing and um, attracting Back when that was buyers. feasible, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Digital marketing's this, a little different today than it was six years ago. Yeah, it sure is. Um, it's like so, a double entendre of, it really, literally is the chicken or the egg, and then the chicken and the egg of digital marketing. That's right. right. Yeah. Consumers. So we got to get the consumers to get the, the suppliers and the suppliers to get the consumers. And in the early days, I want to give a shout out to Ryan Thomas, who was early on at Market Wagon. He was along, hustling along back in the day. He's out there banging on doors and finding initial vendors, finding other types of partners for us. So big shout out to Ryan. Yeah, and, that's awesome. And- uh, that was the kind of the challenge at the time. We were able to find customers. We started down an expansion path, what in hindsight might've been a little early for us, mm. but just by happenstance, we decided to open a few. Somebody wanted us to take over a business in Evansville. So we did that. And then we opened a few more in the early going. So we had six in, as of January, 2020, then the pandemic hit mm. and we made a decision to expand as fast as we could. So we opened all kinds of locations all at once. And we're now we're trying to form these difficult to form relationships with all these vendors in faraway places, not just Cleveland, but also Kansas City and Atlanta and places like that. So it was really challenging. We got, we don't have 37 locations anymore because there was too many, right? Grew too fast. Yeah, grew too fast. But we learned a lot. We learned how to expand. And when we have our next big wave of expansion, we'll know. We'll be ready better. for it. So in hindsight, how do you think about that? Are you like, oh, I wish we hadn't expanded too fast or... Oh, we expanded too fast, but it was worth it because we learned these things along the way. And next time we're ready to really step on the gas. Yeah, I think it was worth it because in, in many of those cities, we grew a pretty nice business and yeah. that, that exists today and is growing. Yeah. So, so you um, planted a lot of seeds. Yeah, that's, that is exactly right. <laughs> and um, uh, you're nurturing the ones that are growing. Some of them came to fruition and some of them didn't. But, yeah. and, and in general, it was the ones that we planted first, like in 2020. Sure. Out of that, that 31 hub. 16 month expansion. Yeah. The first half of that, because they were around longer, they had more resources. It takes time to accrete the critical mass of consumers and suppliers. Yeah. So those are the ones pretty much that are still around. The ones that we opened in 2021, many of those are, we just didn't have the momentum of the wind tailwinds of the pandemic were receding by the time we opened those. And is it hard as a leader, as an executive to know when it's time to put up my uh, <laughs> close up shop on something like that? Yeah, I think it really is. When the first decisions had to be made, and it was over two years ago, here's a few of them that aren't doing very well. We maybe should just cut bait on those. Um, Nick and I and our board were making those decisions, and it was hard. It's hard It's hard to throw the baby out. You yeah. know? How, how quick could you tell? 
it's like you you open this up in 2021 and it's is it like a three-month thing a six-month thing nine a year 18 months and you're like hey we got to start figuring out what we're going to do here yeah less than a year in some of the cases yeah that makes Um, sense yeah so you went from a handful of locations to more than 30 locations in 16 months yep Talk to me about your top tips to entrepreneurs who are managing through a period of rapid expansion. What are the um, things that entrepreneurs need to keep top of mind? Keep your powder dry. Mm. I don't think we did. We didn't have any trouble raising money in 2020 and 2021. Sure. And we believed earnestly and honestly that the sources of that capital wanted us to spend it as rapidly as possible, trying to go the business as, business, grow the business as rapidly as we could. But the digital marketing environment changed underneath this in 2021. Mm-hmm. And the pandemic tide began to roll out. And so some of that spend wasn't very effective. Yep. So my advice to someone else would be keep, make real-time adjustments to your spend so that your runway based on realistic or conservative projections stays where it needs to be. Because I don't think we did that. We yeah. spent it all. What about tips in terms of just leading a team and managing uh, culture and stress during yeah. that time period. So not so much culture and stress during that time period, but uh, we also ended up with a staff to support 37 hubs. So we don't have the same staff anymore. Sure. And that that transition started essentially in the summer of 2022 and had to continue in several steps this year. So we have yeah. a much leaner team than we used to have. So culturally, yeah, if you ask me what's my biggest challenge and what's the most important key to our success, I think it is company culture. I think mm-hmm. that how you keep everyone excited and on the same page and engaged in the process. I think the team is more engaged now than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. That's something I'm very happy about and I'm grateful to that. Yeah. What do you think are some of the steps that you and your leadership team have taken that have contributed to that greater amount of kind of buy-in, collaboration, and everyone getting on the same page? Partly it's just the selection process of who's left. You, sure. you keep the people that are going to be those people. Yeah. But it's being transparent, making sure everybody knows exactly what's going on and what the company's goals are. We set out two goals at the beginning of 2023 and we've hammered them home all year long. Consistency. Was that like a conflicting as the leader, right? You're on your 680 on the Inc. 5000 list. So from the outside looking in, they're like, oh, they're crushing it. They're doing really well. But internally you're shrinking, right? You're letting people go and having to restructure it. How do you manage that as a leader? I don't think there's a conflict and people on the inside know what's going on and we don't hang a banner on our website that says, oh, by the way, we had to say goodbye to two other people this week. That's not really a public piece of information. Well, that that wasn't really a challenge, I don't think. I'm just thinking like you personally, you're the leader there and it's like when you're, I don't know, sometimes like I feel like executives we have on talk about like the, not necessarily the imposter syndrome, but just that experience of everyone saying, boy, good job. Like I'm pumped up going in there of the yeah. market wagons growing. Like Indiana companies are represented really well on the Inc. 5000 list. Right, right. But then like internally, you're like, our team knows it's like, hey, we have to get leaner. We have to, we might have not spent our money in the best places. And you're like on the inside there. The getting lean part is temporary, right? Yeah. We're going to be, we're going to be growing again. We've already, our revenue curve has gone flat this year with zero spend on performance marketing, which is a heck of an accomplishment. Wow, a real testament great. to the Congrats. work that the team has done with the consumers and the vendors yeah. without that budget behind them. So not really a challenge in that regard. And for me personally, I'm persistent <laughs> and I'm a problem solver by nature. Yeah. So we're going to figure it out. And they know that. They know that they hear from me about any topic. Let's dive into the superpower of Market Wagon a little bit more. And you're obviously uh, wheelhouse, supply chain, yeah, logistics. I love that. I love that. For, for those who maybe don't know supply chain, and obviously I think we can go pretty deep because you're okay. an expert. And I, I'd like to get to those like top 1% questions that go really deep. But let's start like way zoomed out. For those who maybe don't know what supply chain is or understand what we're talking about when we say supply chain, what is your definition of supply chain. It means different things to different people, but I would characterize it as the physical journey of whatever product it is. And then, of course, there's an ordering process and there's a non-physical part of it too, but it's the journey of the items that are going to end up in the end user's hands all the way from source to the end user. So it's how do those get through, in some cases, like in mainstream grocery, they're going to go through consolidation channels upstream and into somebody else's distribution center and then maybe into the grocer's distribution center and then out to a regional hub and out to grocery stores. There can be many steps in the supply chain when you're at scale. Mm -hmm. Um, And and these days, right, even to like last mile delivery of like into your 
Postmates car or whatever. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, like, yeah. Which is a whole nother. Co- I'm super excited to dive into that. Yeah, yeah, like, okay. Because like uh, people, feel like we take it for granted. It's, I just press a button anywhere, and it's, it just shows up my door in a couple hours, and it's there. Yeah, and and it's really interesting for me too because I am I am a an order fulfillment automation expert. Like that's a thing that I am. There's other things too, but mm-hmm. that's a thing that I am. And, sure. and I'm running a business that has zero automation and no intention of having any automation anytime soon. Mm. So it puts me in an interesting spot, but it's also the reason why there's a lot of these carcasses by the side of the road of past people who've tried to do home delivered groceries because it can be really expensive on the logistics and supply chain side. And for as long as we've been talking to institutional investors, they ask, what's your utilization of your drivers and what? how big do your warehouses have to be and all that? And we're like, <laughs> we got all that licked. That's great. It's a unique spot to be in, but our business lends itself uniquely well to that. It's really difficult to build a large scale automation operation to assemble specifically grocery orders because the products have all these different form factors and temperature requirements and all of that. Yep. It's really difficult. So whether you're a web van in 2020 or Ocado in 2010 or whoever you are trying to do that, it's really hard. Yeah, And our system gets around all of that. And I can answer lots of questions about yeah. it. But yeah, it, it's fun to be in that side of things where the supply chain is so simple, right? So because it's local to each area, mm-hmm. there's not nearly as much transport. There are additional consolidation points. So most typically, if you're buying a dozen eggs on Market Wagon, the person whose chickens laid those eggs, or maybe somebody that they hired, physically drives them to our location in the morning. Mm-hmm. right? Walks into our building with them, follows instructions generated by our clever software that tells them exactly where each dozen or two dozen or case of eggs is going to go. Mm-hmm. Checks a box. When the vendors have all done that, the order's finished. It's correctly packed. It is already QC'd. We don't need to do anything more with it. We just zip it up and go. And our gig driver takes it to the consumer. So you want to talk about a simple, lean supply chain where we don't have any inbound costs. We have almost no order fulfillment labor costs. If you're Amazon and you want to build, or anybody else who aspires to be an e-commerce player, and you want to build an operation that consolidates different items into one shipping container, Amazon's a bad example because they've made the consolidation point your front door now, right? right. So they, right. they just bring lots of individual things because their trucks are so dense. But yep. somebody on a lesser scale trying to do this that needs to consolidate the items in their building, they've got to figure out automation and transport inside the building. And they've got to figure out how are we going to sort that finished order out to the right destination. And they have to spend a lot of money on either labor or automation to do that. Mm -hmm. And we just pulled all that out at Market Wagon. So it's just such a cool model. I don't get full credit for it. Like Nick was doing this when I met him. Yeah, yeah. But so yeah, so to put that into to like the normal consumer's terms, if Matt and I both ordered I ordered eggs and some meat and something, and Matt just ordered the eggs. Your yep. egg vendor comes to the Market Wagon facility, yep. drops eggs in my box or bag or whatever yep. it is, then puts it in Matt's box, yep. and then the meat vendor would come and just fill my box and then yep. get out of there. Yeah. So you don't even have to have an employee to pack all the stuff no. up. Wow. That's, that's really, really interesting. Efficient. Yeah. yeah. That's very cool. What are some of your top tips? So many businesses and startups, of course, don't have the benefit of sourcing everything locally. And supply chain is complex in different ways. What are some of the top tips that you have to other aspiring entrepreneurs who are working with physical goods? Just keep it as lean as you can. Don't invest in any more physical infrastructure than you have to. If you do need some physical infrastructure, obviously don't put your capital there. This even extends to, there are venture funded companies out there that are doing indoor growing. Mm-hmm. And I hope I'm not throwing anybody under the bus who's watching this by saying so, but why would that be a venture capital investment? Why wouldn't that be like? Like building that building seems like more of a bank investment. Regular capital right? investment. Regular, like this isn't. So. Yeah, interesting. So in terms of keeping overhead low, don't build out all the logistics. Find someone who's already built that. If you that can. Yeah. yeah. Now, when it comes to software, I'm of a different mindset. You okay. know, we're not Bart, using anyone else's software. So one of the things that I learned at Kiva Systems was the really successful dot-coms, the ones that were growing, the ones that were getting bought up by certain other large players, not to be named, Zappos.com diapers.com, those kind of companies that we worked with at Kiva, they built all their own software and Uh. they made that a core competency. So if you're going to get your software to do your business processes and your business processes are going to be unique to the, whatever it is that you're selling, build it yourself. So we brought that philosophy, I brought that philosophy into market wagon and 
Nick built a lot of what we use. That's cool. Uh, today. So you don't even really have inventory management in the, the traditional sense. Is that um, right? The, there's, there are tools that enable the marketplace vendors to manage their inventory on our platform. Okay. Yeah. What are some of the top tips that you give to those vendors in terms of managing their inventory? And maybe that's something that your software is helping them with. Maybe that's something that they're all learning from one another. Yeah, it's really cool because the inventory that is sold on MarketWagon is actually in their field mm. or in their cooler or freezer if they're, a, if they're a meat vendor, for example. So they have to manage it for other channels that they use as well. We have some tools that help them integrate with other tools for managing that. But for the most part, they're able to get into the market wagon portal and, and specify specifically what they're making available for sale and manage it that way. So we don't have to manage the available for sale part at all. How do you choose? I would imagine what vendors you source from is probably one of the most important decisions. Yes, absolutely. You can make. How should other entrepreneurs choose where to source their products from? And how did you do that at market wagon? Those might be two different questions because our business okay. is so unique. You sure, know, if you're sure. talking about food, that's a whole set of food-related yeah. constraints. But in general, you just you want people who are going to be reliable and, and where you're not having to babysit their quality or anything like that. Mm -hmm. That would be my advice. So probably a more established business that's been doing this for a while. They've worked out at the kinks. Maybe. Some established businesses aren't good at it. Some <laughs> startups are. So I feel like it's like the farmer's market thing where it's you, my aunt. She makes pies at the Plymouth Farmer's Market in northern Indiana. Yeah. And she is known across Plymouth as the pie lady. I'll bet she's the blueberry pie lady. Uh, you, you I know, know all the, about the Marshall County Blueberry Festival. <laughs> blueberry Festival. That's a big deal. Well, it's like hidden gem in Indiana. <laughs> yes, it is a hidden gem. And if you haven't been to the Blueberry Festival, you need to. But it's like at a farmer's market, like people go and, and have this brand loyalty to the, the tent, the booth, the person that's there every Saturday morning, like grinding on like making pies for everybody. It yeah. like, doesn't have to be like the established business, like XYZ Farms, but it's like this person who has this like credibility, right? Mm -hmm. Yep, yep, it is. And we have those Marshall County blueberries, by the way, in, in, in a couple of our locations Ooh, that aren't far uh, from that county. Awesome, good. A little plug for the blueberries. Checking that out. Yes. You can add those. Now you can stop buying those frozen berries for your <laughs> I protein do. smoothies. I am a frozen berries kind of guy. Yeah. Got to go fresh, man. Yeah. Absolutely. Talk to me a little bit about the sort of cost when you're sourcing these different vendors, like I would imagine there's some vendors where it feels like a, it's a bargain, but when you like dive into it, it is an actual real efficiencies gain there when you pull open the hood and see how things are working. Pricing and groceries is a really interesting topic. Right? I would imagine. And why are all my groceries twice as expensive as they were a year ago? In general, right? <laughs> yeah. Eggs, eggs in particular, certain thing, commodities have gone way up in price yeah. at the grocery store in the last few years to the point where in some cases they're less expensive on market wagon. In general, our products are going to be similarly or slightly higher priced because they're fresher and their consumers want to pay for knowing where their food come from. Absolutely. And, that, and that is an increasing trend, right? So that's Absolutely. one of the reasons market wagon feels like it's so well positioned for the future. You've got to get, you've got to make sure that they're all real. Yeah. You really want your software algorithms that decide the software algorithms have a lot to say about mm. the shopping experience mm. in, in our e-commerce store. Okay. And they're good. They're getting better. One of the things that we don't do because it's not easy to do is preference for value. So the consumer is having to sort through the different blueberries and the different eggs and figure out, I like the value here. I like this vendor. I've used them before. They have good quality or they have good star ratings or whatever it is and make those decisions. But we're not making a deliberate decision to put the $4.25 eggs behind the $3.75 eggs right. in our search results. And that that's coming. But in order to do that, you have to do a lot more in the software than what we currently have. That's really interesting, the, the algorithm. So they're setting the price. Maybe that's the part I left out of the conversation. Like we're not setting that price. Yeah. The person who's selling on our marketplace is deciding what they're going to charge. And so the algorithm is really just trying to figure out how do I serve more relevant items? Yeah. Yeah. And relevant doesn't necessarily mean lower cost. Or higher cost. It could mean a lot of different things. It doesn't things, necessarily you know? mean, yeah. It, this, this person clearly buys mostly produce. Why am I showing It's very individualized to that person. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I'm becoming more and more that way. Sure. We do show them things from the people they've bought from before. And sure. there, there's some other tweaks to the algorithms, but more is coming. That's, um, that's when, exciting. When, winning that algorithm battle, I'm going to get on a soapbox here for just please, a second. Please, please. When you shop online for 20 things in one session... That's not like shopping on Amazon, which is completely optimized for let's read the reviews, let's buy the one or two things that I'm looking for, and I'll come back and buy some other stuff mm -hmm. in a day or two. Mm -hmm. If you're going to buy 20 things at a time, it is tedious. It takes time to figure out what all you want to put in your cart. 
and different large players as well as Market Wagon have come up with some shortcuts to help you fill your cart faster, but it's an area where we'll be investing heavily in the future. We want to make sure that we're best in class at that so that when you get onto Market Wagon, Market Wagon is like, you wanted, I think you wanted these 20 things. Which ones don't you want? And getting better and better at that is is a core competency that we're what are continuing some of, to work on. What are some of the other things looking forward that you think are going to separate the e-commerce businesses that really take off from the ones that maybe stay stagnant or fade away? Well, it's the same. Everyone's an e-commerce business right now. If you're any kind of a retailer, you're an e-commerce player. Sure. Uh, but it's a weird landscape right now because of the dominance of a few players. Mm-hmm. I think that the successful ones, it is all about the logistics and the supply chain and how do they manage that. Yeah. The other parts are not as easy to screw up. Let's put it that way. <laughs> if someone is an entrepreneur and they're selling goods online and they're not an expert in supply chain yet, where should they start? Should they start with finding a business partner who is a supply chain expert? Or is this something that you think uh, an entrepreneur can learn on the job through trial and error if they have the right resources? Maybe those are books, podcasts, courses. You need to have the relationships with your suppliers. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the physical logistics of order fulfillment, Mm -hmm. a lot of people outsource that to what's called a a third-party logistics provider or 3PL. There's lots and lots of them here in Indianapolis. We're like warehouse. We've had some on the the show. So so a lot of people will do that as a way to not have to build that infrastructure themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So just skip that step. Yep. Allow them to focus on maybe getting a competitive advantage somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Tell me more about what you're excited about with Market Wagon that sets you apart. Just, we know we're still sitting on the right trend. If you look at what happened to e-commerce sales overall, and especially grocery sales during the pandemic, there was a big spike in the Mm -hmm. spring of 2020, and then it fluttered for like almost three years until the end of 2022. The demand on the e-commerce side was slowly declining, Mm. right? And so we experienced that, which is one of the reasons for Parts sure. of earlier parts of this conversation. Sure. But then you get to 2023 and you see what's happening and you look at the projections for the future. Online grocery is, is supposed to double between 2023 and 2028. And we're on the end of it that's highly growing of consumers wanting to know where their food comes from. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're just super excited about what the future holds for Market Wagon. And you're a premium product too. Like it's not a race to the bottom. It's not like your target customer is coming and being like, all right, how can I save some money here today? I think it might be an aspect, but. We've learned that everybody cares what they spend on groceries. Sure. From the very wealthiest person to the very not. And all of those people shop on Market Wagon. Some of them spend more, some of them spend less. We're not targeting any one specific demographic and everybody cares. But yeah. I think what's super interesting, I'd love to hear like maybe a success story of someone that out on the market wagon platform and instead of being in a small little physical space on a saturday mornings yep. are there any stories of how you've helped grow people's small businesses into bigger businesses and sell pies or whatever lots and lots of stories there cool. there are businesses that we helped survive the pandemic businesses that we helped to grow or and augment what they're doing one particular story that stands out would be a, a company called native bread that makes gluten-free baked good gluten-free bread type products and if i can say her name Haley mcginley the founder of that company was on Market Wagon at the very beginning, right? And she's in there every week with her, however many loaves of bread growing and growing. And she eventually became a pretty big vendor on Market Wagon and eventually opened a shop. And that's it's cool. just, she grew her business by starting out on Market Wagon as best I know, so. That's awesome. And then I, I'd love to dive in one more question. You think about the gig driver, right? And yep. these people have such, if you're a vendor at a farmer's market, you have such pride in presentation and delivery. How are you able to manage or manage those drivers to make sure that they give a, a full premium experience to the door? That's a really good question. Because they're gig drivers using their own vehicles and they're unlabeled, the vehicles, we are, it's basically a drop-off, like what Amazon drivers currently do. They just mm-hmm. ring the doorbell and they go away. So it's that. They're not really, now some of the customers really do want to interact with them and they'll greet them and talk to them and all of that. But long as they're there on time and the food is in good condition, that's really what we're looking for. We're not looking for relationship skills mm-hmm. necessarily when we hire those people. And they're great people. They're, they are dedicated and they are very reliable or they wouldn't be driving for us. And they're making good money right now too. So it's, um, but yeah, it's not, it's, when you say premium experience, that premium experience is when you go by, I hope it's okay if I say people's names, you go by Crumble Cookies and they come in this really fancy pink box yeah. and mm-hmm. they're trying to deliver a premium experience. Yeah. Premium, yeah. 
cookie with the premium amount of sugar in it and all of that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, we don't see ourselves that way. It's more of a meat and potatoes business. No okay. pun intended. Yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Maybe pun intended. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk about some of the technologies that are really driving innovation in supply chain right now? Yeah, I can. I have the same opinion about some of them as other people do. We're yeah, here, I, we're here we want, hot takes. We want your hot take. Yeah. One, of the, one of the big things is, especially in e-commerce grocery, is what they call micro-fulfillment. Okay. Let me give you a little bit of automation in a small footprint in your remote building so that the goods are close to the consumer and the orders can still be assembled. Not sure that's the best solution for everybody because once you have automation, then there's a technical component and it has mm -hmm. to be maintained and people need to be able to service it. And I think automation works a little bit better at some scale. Mm -hmm. So that's just one, one example of kind of a trendy thing. There, okay. there also are, Kiva was a pioneer, not the only pioneer and not the only technology, sure. um, especially compared with some other companies out of Europe, but it was a goods to person fulfillment technology. So it would bring the items to the person who is then going to use their hands to get them and put them in the customer order. There are innovations all the time in pick and place robotics to do that last part. There are other types of goods to person technologies that have emerged and become very popular in the last few years. What are some of the things that you learned at Kiva Systems just in general of, of how to approach innovation, how, how to move the business forward in a very measured sort of way? One of my roles for a time at Kiva was uh, interfacing between the sales team. Like I said earlier, any business that's delivering items to consumers or, or picking and placing any items for any purpose, they're going to have requirements and processes that they have to follow. A medical device company is going to be very different from a, sure. a, a doorknob company and so forth. They would always be coming into our sales team at Kiva. We're trying to sell these multi-million dollar automation systems when I worked for that company. Mm. And they had their own set of business requirements. So the salespeople would go to the tech side and the product side of the business and say, well, if we just had these five features, we'd get this sale. Mm -hmm. And my role for a while was to broker that with a representative of the software team. I was on behalf of the business side and he was on behalf of the software team. And those were really great conversations. Okay, oh, we got bet. these five features. You say these two are hard. I think these other two are required and let's broker that. Let's figure out workarounds so it's not as hard and it can use the tech we already have. And, and these three things they don't really need, or they can do this other thing. So, so that was for me, I know that's a detailed story, but that was a really fun part of that job. I bet to some degree you're still doing that today yep. at Market Wagon. Absolutely. Yeah. Any tips for people on, on how to manage that process of, okay, there's demand here, but this is what we have over here. How do we bridge that gap? Yeah. You just need, you need conscientious and dedicated people. And, and it's a, it's a two-way conversation. Mm. We, we do. I have those conversations all the time right now with, with our head of software. And he'll say, I'll, I'll say, we need this thing. And he'll say, this is hard. And unfortunately for him, I have just enough of a technical background to say, tell me why it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> and then we had that conversation and sure. maybe it really is hard. Sure. And maybe it isn't. And he, he does a great job as well. I That's think cool. that, that from diving into this, such a wealth of knowledge on supply chain, yep. but also building marketplaces yep. and really like, like as I have processed more of this conversation, I'm like, huh, it's really about getting the right vendors and the right customers and would you have advice for anyone out there that's trying to build a market, whether it's in whatever it could be, any industry, marketplaces are hot, two sides to it. What would you say your advice is to anyone out there trying to build a marketplace? I would say it's hard on both sides. And we just hired someone who is just fantastic and came from a marketplace business that he co-founded. So his experience working with both sides of that is invaluable. We, we can give Josh a shout out. John right. Laughlin, yeah. John Laughlin, what a guy. John's doing a great job. Yes. So okay. So, excited about him. So if we just double click real quick in that, because I know we're coming close to time. If you had advice, like first piece of advice to go out and either find vendors or go out and find customers, how do you get the first 10 of each of those? I think you're going to have some suppliers first and you're going to have to get them to be betting on the fact that you're going to get some consumers because if there's nothing to buy, you're not going to get the consumers. Yes, <laughs> Start with the supply side. And we had that. I think... For Market Wagon, Indianapolis is our most successive, successful hub. We've got some other very successful ones, but Indianapolis is really big. Mm. And it's because we were there. You know, like mm -hmm. this, the vendors could get to know the team when they were in our place. And so one of the lessons for the future is don't try to do that without being able to have that physical relationship. And I think in some of the other cities that we're in, when we go back or when we start anew with expansion, there'll be more of a presence in that city. Is that kind of like the Brian Chesky story where you like went and actually photographed people's houses for Airbnb so that people would yeah. book that? Because it was like they were taking it with the 
like a 2000s flip phone and yeah, who yeah. wants to stay in that dark, <laughs> creepy room back there? So go out there and take the pictures. Help these vendors and, right. and that's going to bring in more customers. And yeah. I love that. Increasingly, we help them a little bit because they're not always good at those things today. Yeah. Right? Not always good at pictures, not always good at descriptions. So we, we try to help them through that. It's, it stands out to me that Market Wagon stands squarely in this, what we call like the Unvalley trend, mm -hmm. meaning it's the unbundling of Silicon Valley. We can grab the things that we like that Silicon Valley adopted, but also in a lot of ways, there's so much untapped potential in these markets like Indianapolis yep. where innovation can happen and where a lot of the outsized opportunity is for entrepreneurs to create more value in whatever marketplace they happen to, yep. to execute in. I'm curious, what other ways have you seen this like unvalley trend really be um, a tailwind for Market Wagon? When you say unvalley trend, are you just talking about funding sources or are you talking about approaches to the business? Both, actually. Unvalley meaning you're able to grab the technologies and innovations, you're using big data, you're creating algorithms, oh, yeah. a lot of things that started out of Silicon Valley and you're implementing them. But you're also, you mentioned so many other, there's a graveyard of other grocery delivery businesses yeah. that are headquartered in the Valley. And part of why Market Wagon is growing is that you have your own approach right. to things yeah. and you're serving these markets. My guess is like New York City isn't your biggest market Correct. Yep. currently. So I'm just curious how you see those, both of those trends, which I would almost categorize as this unvalley, like unbundling of Silicon Valley. Things don't have to be headquartered in the three biggest cities of the country right. uh, for tech, but also you're able to grab the things from the Valley and innovation. Obviously, those are great tech hubs. I think you see some of the DNA in the conversation we've had so far. You've got the Kiva guy, Mick, who was working in the Valley. Yeah. And then moved his company to Boston because that's where the funding was. Mm -hmm. And so you've got all that DNA coming through me into Market Wagon. So it's, I tried to bring the best of what I saw in those places. But all over the Midwest and central part of the United States, we have entrepreneurs who, who don't even have those backgrounds mm -hmm. who are doing killer things. They're doing amazing Absolutely. things. And my advice would be stick to your guns. You've figured out what you need for your business to survive. Yeah. Make it work. Don't follow the lemmings. Don't follow the trends. Do what you need to do to make your business work. Why have you picked uh, business, or cities similar to Indianapolis for your expansion and, and not necessarily New York or San Francisco? We've had some interesting learnings in that regard, but... During our expansion phase, we wanted them to be in arm's reach yep. so that we could go there if we needed to. What happens if the person running the hub gets sick, you know, sure. or if a vendor who sells in Cincinnati also wants to sell in Columbus, so you have that synergy. That's really the reason we expanded like ripples on yeah. a pond, not because of what the cities were. We did pick some smaller cities, some of which we don't have anymore, like a Lexington is now delivered from Louisville, mm. for example. But the, there are a lot of cities like Indianapolis that also are in that sort of convenient Ripples on a pond geography, your Pittsburghs, your St. Louis's, your Milwaukee's and all of that. We have a fair amount of experience in Chicago too. Yeah. And, and Chicago is hard and it's hard for us more, probably more on the supply side than the demand side, mm -hmm. because there's a certain amount of demand in Chicago for this kind of food and it's huge. Mm -hmm. And ask yourself how much land is there within 40 miles of the loop? You've got a lake, you've got only so many farms that can be there. So it's hard. It's a tricky I, problem. I don't know if you could pay me enough money to be a delivery driver in Chicago. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like that was, oh man. We do it. And actually our volume in Chicago itself is growing right now, yeah. but we don't have a location there anymore. Our location is just over the state line in Wisconsin, which is within our geographic proximity. A lot of the food that's sold in Chicago is from Illinois and Wisconsin, but there's drivers from Wisconsin who are happy to drive. Yeah. There's some who aren't. But there's <laughs> drivers who are happy to drive into Chicago and do that. That's cool. Yeah. You've got, I would imagine, just tons of interesting data. Talk yeah. to me a little bit about supply chain analytics, some of the ones that you pay close attention to, and just in general, why that's an important part of your business. We pay attention to a lot of the same metrics any other marketplace organization. What, what are those would. like top three to five? What's the frequency? What's the persistence and stickiness of the customers. Mm -hmm. um, what does it cost to get the customers? Those, yep. those types of metrics. Everybody knows those metrics. From a supply chain standpoint, we track really carefully our fill rate, which is over 98.5% of all the line items that are ever ordered on Market Wagon get there. They're the correct item. They're the correct quality. No problems. And that's really good for the grocery space. And yet here we are with the no automation and the, the vendor's hands are on the product. That's, you don't have control of that labor force, but they care. Yeah. They care a lot about making sure the right items get to the customer. So seems like that's a really important part of the culture. Yeah, it is. Proliferates beyond just the 
W-2 employees. Right. So that fill rate is super important. Our on-time delivery rate is super important. Our, yeah. our, do we get all the orders delivered correctly? So we pay a lot. Of, so from a supply chain standpoint, those are the types of metrics that we look at. What are the things that you're most excited about for Market Wagon in the years ahead? I think we all know that, know it's going to grow. We know this business is going to grow. We have seen other startups try with different approaches and fail, not just 20 years ago, but two years ago and five years ago. It's a hard space, yeah. but we've got it figured out. Our, our units make money, right? So it's just a question of when is the right time to do that expansion. And uh, then we'll be out there and this will be, this will be, it's funny because I don't like to brand it as this nationwide juggernaut because to the person in Boise, Idaho, who's buying on market wagon, doesn't need to look that way. They just need to see the Boise farmers. Yeah. But from an economic and business model standpoint, we want to be all over the country in, mm-hmm. in uh, by 2028. So that's exciting. That's yeah. so exciting. Dan, because of all of your entrepreneurial endeavors, I would be remiss if I didn't ask this question. What advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs based on your own life experiences? Yeah, I would say if you're going to need outside funding, form those relationships as soon as you can. Because the, the people and the entities that have funded us have been the people who've tracked us. Mm. So you can go to events and you can do cold reach outs and you can meet, whether you're looking for a traditional VC or angels or family offices, or whatever you're looking for, it's going to be hard to get someone to write you a check if they just met you two weeks ago, no matter how great your story is, no matter how great your metrics are. And I, I say this every time I get asked this question, it's cast a wide net early and keep them updated on a regular basis. Some great things we learned. We participated in one of the generator accelerators, the G-Beta Ag Bioscience Program cool. in 2019. And they preached that. They preached that constant communication to your potential investors. But in order for that to work, you have to meet them early. Yep. So yep. that's my advice to that's, someone who's going to need funding. Not, not everybody needs funding, but if you do. That's a good one. And whether you do now or not, it's nice to have the option. Yeah, you will someday. Yeah. So assume you will, yeah. right? And form those relationships now in the local community. And then get introduced by those people or by whoever else you can to people in a more regional or national community that are interested in your particular space. And even if you just need advice, yep. ask for money. You'll probably get it. Yeah. <laughs> ask for advice, get money. Ask for money, get advice. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> Pitbull coined that term. Yeah, gotta be. This is your favorite part, Nate. Dan, it is time for my favorite part. And it's the lightning round. Bum bum. I do have a couple. I have two unique questions just to this one because I'm so intrigued. 42. Fo- no, blue. No, yellow. <laughs> there we go. How did you know about um, Dan, my first question is, who is the most unique vendor on Market Wagon? Oh, wow. Um, oh, most unique. I don't know. Wow. I was not prepared for this question. First one that comes to mind, there are no wrong answers, and we know um, you're going to forget a bunch of ones. There's, there are people who've, who forage a vacant lot near where they live, and they bring us all kinds of weird roots and berries and fruits and things. So that's an oddball one. There we That's go. cool. Um, and it's fun for people to probably to shop those items. Other unique things. We've had some pretty unique proteins before, odd animals and things, which we love. So the more unique it can be, the better. But thinking across categories unusual fruits and vegetables. So it's, to me, it's about the product. Are you selling something that is, and it's really for us to attract and retain that shopper who's going to devote not all of their grocery budget, but part of their grocery budget to ordering regularly from Market Wagon. We want them to have the experience, Nate, that you were fishing for there, which is, oh, I shopped on Market Wagon. And there's, either, there's a thing I saw that was really cool and I had to try it. <laughs> and then there's these other things that I can only get on Market Wagon and I'm going to keep ordering on Market Wagon. Yeah, I was so. thinking like the like organic beeswax, I don't know what, like sure. something just crazy that I'm like, oh my gosh, that's a thing. Yeah, there are some crazy things. There's people selling flowers. Yeah, it's all over the map. I, I love Se- it. Seeds that they save and heritage seeds. That's another cool thing. Okay. All right. Oh, that's awesome. One more, one more Market Wagon specific question for the lightning round. I would love to know, if you're filling your cart, top three things from around in the Indianapolis area, right? You're here in Indy. Top three things that go into your cart every single week. My cart. I'm not vegan, but the vegan burritos from Sea Salt and Cinnamon are awesome. Okay. Mm. Around here and they end up in my cart a lot. The milk from Crystal Springs Creamery and sometimes other dairy providers ends up in my cart. The English muffins from No Label at the Table, a caramel-based gluten-free. Great I'm not gluten-free, but they're great English muffins. We've got some other new good English muffins too. I love those that. Are great yeah. answers. That's a great answer. I can't wait to go and check out those Instagrams for all those yeah. vendors and just like see what we're working with there. All right. Now to our typical three questions for the lightning round. Dan, outside of the amazing entrepreneurs, what is Indiana known for? Uh, corn. Heck, spoken like a true farmer's market guy. <laughs> yes. And corn. soybeans. Yeah. And soybeans. Got to get the soybeans in there. 
Dan, what is a hidden gem in Indiana? Hidden gem in Indiana. Uh, we have, I'm, I'm sorry, my mind goes to food. So I love that. We have produce farms in Indiana. There aren't very many. It's hard to grow organic berries in Indiana, for example. Yeah. We just don't really have the climate for it. It's like trying to find great grapes, you know, but we have them. Like no matter where you go, there are, is a community of small food growers and producers. If we, when we launch in Phoenix, you think Phoenix in the middle of the desert, you won't be able to find the same produce. No, it's all there. You go to the farmer's market in, in Phoenix or one of the suburbs, it's all there. So technology is awesome. Maybe Fairbanks would be a challenge, but. Ooh, okay. All right. I love that. That's good. And I feel like that's, we had Mitch Frazier on the show. Yeah. We talked about ag tech and that kind of what's being built in Indiana. And it's, this spreads all the way up market to the everyday, the food grower, right? The yep. helping put, what is Mitch's line? Ag is the only industry that touches every single person on the planet three times a day. At least three times At least three times a day. At least three times a day. Yeah. In my case, sometimes five or six. Yeah, same. Oh, yeah. And our final question, Dan, who is someone we need to keep on our radar? Someone who is doing big things. First thing that comes to mind. I would keep an eye on Nick, my co-founder. Well, he's doing some other things now. And yeah. he's a super talented guy. Nick keep Kramer. A, keep an eye on Nick Carter. Nick Carter. Oh gosh, keep Nick Carter. Nick. <laughs> Nick Kramer is another entrepreneur who's pitched on the powder cake stage. <laughs> in, in circa the same era as Nick Carter's yeah. first first pitch. Yes. I love it. This was spectacular, Dan. I loved hearing about what you're doing with Market Wagon and the expansion and everything you guys have been doing and, and how you think about logistics and supply chain. It was honestly so much different than the conversation <laughs> I expected to have. Truthfully, I came okay. in and I was like, it, it's the opposite way, which is, it's a good thing. I love it. Final reminder to all listeners out there. If you send us three startup t-shirts, large to 16 Tech, addressed to Powder Keg, we will rep your startup on the show. We'll wear them. We don't have any on today, normal clothes. But if you send three startup tees, we're going to talk about your startup, your organization, whatever you want. And Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. This was awesome, it was Dan. Thanks for all you do. This has been Get In, a Powder Kick production in partnership with Elevate Ventures. And we want to hear from you. If you have suggestions for a guest or a segment, reach out to Matt or Nate on LinkedIn or on email. To discover top tier tech companies outside of Silicon Valley in hubs like Indiana, check out our newsletter at powderkeg.com slash newsletter. And to apply for membership to the Powder Keg executive community, check out powderkeg.com slash premium. We'll catch you next time and next week as we continue to help the world get in. Since you just listened to this podcast, you might be thinking about starting one for your company. Lucky for you, our partners over at Casted have you covered. Casted is the first and only podcast and video marketing platform made specifically for B2B brands. I love this about them. The platform makes it possible to publish, syndicate, amplify, and measure the value of your podcast and video content. In fact, we use it for our podcast here at Powder Keg. And if you're a startup, you should listen up because Casted for startups is definitely for you. They are offering exclusive deep discounts of up to 82% off retail price for qualifying startups. Connect with Casted at casted.us slash powderkeg.